All right, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of done with COVID-19. I mean, I'm done. Thanks. I'm kind of full. I'll have no more. I'll back away from the table. Well, I wish it was that easy, right? I mean, unfortunately, it's still around. And although there's progress being made on the vaccine front, we still have to keep current because the information is moving so fast, like the new ACOG FAQ section on their webpage, the Frequently Asked Questions. ACOG has updated some current concepts on COVID-19 management for both the healthcare provider and patient care, and this was just done July the 27th. So let's go ahead and review some of these new updated concepts about how we can not only take care of ourselves, but obviously of our patients, based on ACOG's updated FAQ section from July 27th. Hey, this is Beth, labor and delivery nurse in College Station, Texas, and this is Clinical Pearls. COVID-19 and antenatal corticosteroids. Yes, no, yes, no. I mean, it's kind of gone the full circle, but that's okay. See, people get frustrated because these things change so much, but that's what evidence does. I mean, as new things come to light, we have to accept and adopt because medicine just keeps changing. So let's take a look at this issue about antenatal corticosteroids in the patient with suspected or confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection. Is there a role for it? At the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, based on experience in both SARS and MERS, recommendations cautioned against the use of systemic corticosteroids due to risk of worsening clinical status, delayed viral clearance, and adverse events. And that came from the Infectious Disease Society of America. So based on those concerns for potential maternal harm and weighing them against the neonatal benefit of antenatal corticosteroid administration, ACOG originally suggested to continue offering antenatal corticosteroids in the preterm period for women with suspected or confirmed COVID-19, but to not offer antenatal corticosteroids to pregnant women with a condition at 34 to 36 weeks and 6 days. However, based on recent data supporting the use of corticosteroids in severely ill patients in the treatment of COVID-19, it does not appear that the administration of corticosteroids leads to maternal harm. So, ACOG now recommends offering antenatal corticosteroids just as indicated for fetal benefit, like in the Committee Opinion 713, and that does include administration in the late preterm period. Now, remember that that's a whole different other issue because there's new data that in women who received corticosteroids for fetal lung maturity in the late preterm period, but then went on to deliver at term, those children may have some neurodevelopmental issues. So we should only give it really if we're sure that they're going to deliver preterm. But that's a separate issue and there's a separate podcast for that. For this issue, for this edition, we're talking about specifically the use of steroids for fetal benefit in patients with COVID. And ACOG, once again, has now said, yes, you can go ahead and give it as indicated, both in the preterm period as well as a late preterm interval. That dealt with administration of steroids for fetal benefit. But what about administration of steroids for maternal benefit? Now remember, initially that was a no-go, but that also has changed. So is there any real benefit associated with the use of corticosteroids for pregnant patients with moderate or severe COVID-19 illness? Well, again, this changed July 27th, 2020. 
A preliminary published analysis from a large multi-center randomized open-label trial for hospitalized patients in the UK demonstrated that patients who were randomized to receive dexamethasone and those 6 milligrams once daily, either oral or IV, had a reduced rate of mortality compared to those who received standard care. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. In the dexamethasone group, the incidence of death was lower than that in the standard care group among patients requiring mechanical ventilation and among those receiving oxygen without mechanical ventilation. Therefore, for the general population, the NIH now recommends using dexamethasone at a dose of 6 mg per day up to 10 days in patients with COVID-19 who are mechanically ventilated and in patients with COVID-19 who require supplemental oxygen but who are not mechanically ventilated. The NIH recommends against using dex in patients with COVID-19 who do not require supplemental O2. Now, although these recommendations are not specific to pregnant individuals, ACOG recommends that DEX be used for pregnant women with COVID-19 who are receiving supplemental oxygen or are mechanically ventilated and that dexamethasone not be withheld for treatment for COVID-19 just because the patient is pregnant. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Moving on, the next updated question and information has to do with tranexamic acid use in COVID-19 pregnant patients. Now, we kind of touched on this on a prior podcast, but again, this last update was July 27th, 2020. So is it reasonable to use TXA or hemabate for treatment of postpartum hemorrhage in pregnant individuals with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 infection? Because of pulmonary and prothrombotic manifestations of COVID-19, the question as to whether TXA or hemabate can be used has arisen. Hemabate is associated with bronchospasm such that its use is contraindicated in women with asthma. Now, while there is no specific data specific to COVID-19 infection, the pulmonary manifestation of COVID-19 is viral pneumonia, not bronchospasm. So hemabate is not generally withheld in that setting. Similar to individuals without COVID-19, TXA may be considered for individuals with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 infection who experience postpartum hemorrhage when all other initial medical therapies fail. Because of the possible additive effect of the increased risk of thrombosis from COVID-19 infection and the hypercoagulable state of pregnancy, it may be prudent to consider this increased likelihood of clotting before administering TXA for postpartum hemorrhage. The next question has to do with mother-infant dyads. How should a mother-infant dyad be located in the hospital when the mother has suspected or confirmed COVID-19 infection? Whether to separate a woman with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 from her newborn is a challenging topic. Available evidence on which to base firm recommendations is still limited. Several organizations recommend allowing the mother and infant to remain together with enhanced precautions in place. These guidelines still emphasize the well-documented benefits of keeping the mother with her newborn, the benefits of breastfeeding and skin-to-skin contact. 
Given the limited evidence on this topic, the determination of whether to keep patients with known or suspected COVID-19 and their infants together or to separate after birth should be made on a case-by-case basis using shared decision-making between the patient and the clinical team. In the counseling process, it's important to include a discussion of the risks and benefits, including the benefits of keeping the mother with the newborn and the risk of uncommon but potentially severe infection. Although separation in the hospital setting temporarily reduces the risk of neonatal infection, separation of patients from their newborns may be linked to additional risks, including, but not limited to, undue stress on the patient and disruption of breastfeeding. In addition, available infection control measures and options for accommodations, including the feasibility of temporary separation in both the hospital setting and upon discharge, should be discussed. Possible options for accommodations include co-isolation or rooming in. This occurs in accordance with the mother's wishes or can be unavoidable because of space limitations within the facility. Now, when this approach is taken, it should be combined with safety measures to minimize the risk of transmission. These include the mother wearing a mask or a cloth face covering and practicing hand hygiene during all contact with the neonate. Masks or cloth face coverings should not be placed on neonates or children younger than two years of age. Also, consider engineering controls like using physical barriers, placing the neonate in a temperature-controlled isolate, for example, and keeping the neonate six feet or more away from the mother as often as possible. What about temporary separation? This is temporary separate rooms. Decisions about temporary separation should be made in accordance with the mother's wishes. Additional considerations include clinical conditions of the mother and the neonate, where separation may be necessary for infants at higher risk of severe illness, like if they're preterm, and infants with medical conditions, or mothers who are severely ill. Also consider the availability of testing, staffing, space, and PPE in the healthcare facility. Now, here's an important clinical pearl. If the neonate tests positive for SARS-CoV-2, then obviously separation is no longer necessary. The pregnant individual's home situation and ability to adhere to physical distancing and hygiene upon discharge is also a valid consideration. And our last question that was updated July 27, 2020, follows the updated CDC guidelines on when an OBGYN practitioner with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 can return to work. Now remember, the CDC made these changes in the guidelines just recently and ACOG has followed suit. OBGYNs or other obstetric practitioners can return to work when they meet the CDC criteria of when to discontinue transmission-based precautions. Remember that a test-based strategy is no longer recommended because in the majority of cases, we know that people continue to shed detectable SARS-CoV-2 RNA but are no longer infectious. So it's recommended to use a symptom-based strategy of when people can return to work. For healthcare practitioners with mild to moderate illness who are not severely immunocompromised, then they can return when at least 10 days have passed since symptoms first appeared and at least 24 hours have passed since fever without fever-reducing meds. Remember, it used to be 72 hours, but now it's cut down to 24. Lastly, their symptoms like cough or shortness of breath need to be improved before returning to work. 
Now, here's a special note. Healthcare practitioners who are not severely immunocompromised and were completely asymptomatic throughout their infection may return to work when at least 10 days have passed since the date of their first positive viral diagnostic test. For healthcare practitioners with severe to critical illness or who are severely immunocompromised, then at least 20 days need to pass between onset of symptoms and the 20-day period to return to work. There also needs to be at least 24 hours of interval where there's no temperature without the use of fever-reducing meds. And of course, symptoms have to have been improved, namely cough or shortness of breath. All right, that wraps up our quick review of the July 27 update from the college. Thanks for being part of Clinical Pearls, and we'll see you on another episode.